Welcome to the Open Bible Podcast, a resource of Church of the Open Bible in Swift Current, Saskatchewan. In today's episode, Pastor Jay and Pastor Joe discuss the def- doctrine of the church or ecclesiology. They will discuss the definition of church and if Israel and the church are interchangeable or distinct. Hello, church and guests. This is Pastor Jay Hines. And Pastor Joe Sorgen. Welcoming you to another episode of the Open Bible Podcast. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. On today's episode, we will be looking at chapters 69 and 70 of Charles Ryrie's book, Basic Theology, which begins his section on the doctrine of the church or ecclesiology. And he begins by considering first the, the definition of the church and then also the distinction of the church. And so we're going to start then with the definition and just looking, considering, discussing what exactly is the church according to the New Testament. Let's try to give some kind of a, a summary, I guess. Yeah. So in the New Testament, the, the Greek word used for church is ecclesia, uh, which is where we get that term ecclesiology, which is the study of the church. And, uh, and ecclesia essentially means uh, assembly. It means, uh, you know, a, a, a gathering. Um, but the meaning of the church is more than just a gathering or an assembly. It, it's it's actually a people. Uh, and, and the proper definition, I think, of the New Testament church is the community of believers. Those who believe upon Jesus Christ uh, right now today are uh, a part of the church. And that church is also called the body of Christ. We see this in uh, several places in the Bible, but one place is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, where it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so clearly we see that the church is uh, considered to be the the body of Christ and how that body of Christ plays out on uh, on earth in the world. It kind of has two different distinctions as well. Some people separate a little further. I'm fine with just saying, the universal church, which is, again, the body of all believers throughout the world. And then that, that universal church is played out in local places. And so we consider that to be the local church. And you can see that in places like the Acts, uh, all of the letters in the New Testament, most of them are written to specific local churches. And they would have been passed around to other churches as well. Um, but uh, in, in the local context, we see that there's this uh, local assembly of of believers and therefore they are a church and the idea of uh, the universal church comes from first corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 i think this is a very very important verse here it says for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body jews or greeks slaves or free and all were made to drink of one spirit and sorry right before that in verse 12 it says uh, and all the members of the body though many are one body so it is with christ so the idea is that the body of Christ, which we now know is the church, according to Ephesians chapter 1, uh, are, are made up of those who have been baptized by the Spirit, which happens at the moment uh, we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, that's just a, a little overview, very brief, of what the New Testament has to say about what the church is. Yeah, that's good. And and a helpful. it is a helpful distinction, like you said. Uh, we want to be careful on making too sharp of a distinction, but yeah, between the universal church, mm-hmm. um, all believers everywhere. Another passage that would talk about that very clearly is Ephesians 1, verse 22 to 23, 
where it says, and he, Jesus, put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. He's clearly talking about uh, not just the church in, in Ephesus that he's writing this to, but the greater church, all believers in Christ in this age, or like you said, the community of believers of Christ in this age. But most of the New Testament is talking directly to and usually about the church in, in localized places. And it's interesting. Sometimes the local church, it's talking about the church probably most often actually in a city. So it's like the church in Rome, the church in Ephesus, which could be maybe just one uh, group of believers that are committed to each other and meet regularly together and and have all the d distinctives of the church that will, you know, and, and the church government and all that stuff that we'll talk about in a few episodes from now, kind of what we usually think of as a local church, but uh, there might've been many local churches in that city. And so the local church could be uh, referring to a number of individual churches that were maybe often meeting in homes or other locations at the time. And that that's the local church, all of those together, or the local church as we tend to think of it more often now today uh, as, as just the, the uh, group of believers, the community of believers who are joined together and meet regularly together. Uh, and, and, and that that's the local church in that sense. Um, but it's also helpful to think about this because in English, for some reason, we've used the word church in a number of different ways, haven't we? I mean, yes, we think about it that way as the people, the body of Christ, universal and local. But we also use the word for the building, which can cause a lot of confusion. And we can use it for the event of worship on the Lord's Day. Like I'm going to church, right? Or let's meet at the church in the building. Um, you know, that's just something that's happened in English. Honestly, I like to just to, to make the point of recognizing, no, it's not the place or the event, it's the people by rather saying, hey, let's meet at the church building. Sometimes people have said a chapel. Um, and instead of saying, Let, are you going to church today? Are you going to corporate worship today on the Lord's Day? That kind of thing. Just to make clear that biblically, it's not used that way. The, the word ecclesia or church is never used for a building or for an event. And so, you know, we should be careful about that because we don't want to lose this significance. Uh so when and how did the church begin then? Yeah, so in in uh, the book of Matthew, in chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, I will build my church. And so clearly, if Jesus is saying, I will, the implication there is the church did not exist when Jesus is saying this. He's saying, I am going to build my church. So it's something he's prophesying will happen. And, uh, and then it did happen in the book of Acts. Uh, when Jesus sent the, the Holy Spirit to basically activate the church in, uh, in Acts chapter 2 at, at the day of Pentecost. Uh, and and uh, he, he prepared the disciples, he prepared the apostles uh, to kind of lay that foundation of the church and, and gave them right teaching to form the church. Um, but ultimately, it is Jesus who sent the Holy Spirit. And by doing so, uh, all those who put their faith in Jesus were baptized by the Holy Spirit. And again, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, at that moment, they became the body of Christ. They became the church. And so that's really how and when the church began uh, in, in Acts chapter 2 there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's a number of other evidence for this as well. Uh, for example, just in Ephesians again, chapter 1, verse 20, it says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him 
at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And then what I read earlier in verse 22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet and gave them as head over all things to the church. So essentially what he's saying is for Christ to be the head of the body, he had to be resurrected. Uh, and exalted that needed to happen before the church could exist uh, he needed to be this exalted head of the body and you can't have a headless body and so clearly christ needed to, this needed to happen before the church could begin uh, another line of evidence about this is then found in in ephesians 2 and verse 11 to 21 that whole section 2 where it talks about this one new man verse uh 14, 15, he's talking about Gentiles and Jews being put together for he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down the flesh, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing uh, the hostility. So he's saying this is a new thing. This is a new man, Jew and Gentile coming together. This isn't something that was existing before. It's It's new. And chapter 3 in Ephesians makes it even more clear where it talks about the mystery of Gentiles and Jews coming together as one body. And mystery doesn't mean something, you know, secret that only a certain people can understand. Mystery means something, mysterion in the Greek means a truth that had not been revealed, but now has been revealed. And there's this new truth that, hey, there's this new entity. It is the church, this new one man, uh, Jew and Gentile together in the body of Christ. And then Ephesians 4 also uh, equates the, the resurrection and ascension of Christ and how that was necessary for him then to pour out gifts upon the church, which would be necessary for the church and for its uh, building, uh, which includes gifted leaders and people where it says in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, teachers, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. The Christ couldn't the body of Christ, the church could not be built up until Christ gave those gifts and those gifted people to the church. And that only happened after his resurrection uh, and ascension. And then finally, too, like you mentioned, this baptizing work of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That is absolutely necessary. The baptizing or immersing of all believers into the body of Christ, the universal church. Well, when did that happen? Well, it didn't happen before uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. It only happened after when he in Acts 1 tells his disciples, you need to wait. The baptizing of the Holy Spirit is going to happen. It hadn't happened yet. Acts 2, it happens. Well, we know then that's when the church, the body of Christ, must have began. Yeah, exactly. So linked to that then is what is the relation of the church to Israel? Yeah, so this is a it's a it's a big question and all sorts of people have different ideas about this. But uh, I want to make very clear where uh, where I would stand and where Pastor Jay would stand as well. The, the church and Israel are completely distinct. Uh, there's there's some people who would say you've got Israel and they're God's people in the Old Testament. And then you've got the church and they're like the new Israel. They're now God's new people in the New Testament. And basically Israel doesn't matter anymore. Well, that simply is not true. Uh, the, the church and Israel are distinct. But as you read before, it's clear that there's members of Israel. There's Jewish people who 
come and, and end up being part of the church because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. But yet we still see there's this distinction. And Romans chapter 11 makes this pretty clear. It talks about how uh, the, the Gentiles are grafted in uh, with, with Israel. It's not that they've replaced Israel by any means, but they're, they're grafted in. And now there's, there's this new people of God who is the, the church, but that's totally separate from uh, God's people of, of Israel. And, uh, and I think we can see that even if you read on in, in say, Revelation, as an example, mm-hmm. you see even uh, going on until the very end uh, of, of times as we know it, uh, there's still that distinction between the church and between Israel. And I think that's a, a very important thing that we should uh, make note of. And uh, we want to be careful not to uh, think of ourselves as replacing Israel. Yeah, and obviously that's a whole episode on its own. For sure. <laughs> um, and, and maybe there isn't former episode that we did on that I can't remember exactly or if I interviewed someone about that but um it is interesting uh Israel is used the word 66 times in the New Testament and contextually it always is referring clearly to ethnic Jews mm-hmm. to the descendants of Abraham Isaac and Jacob but also there's there's just a number of instances in the New Testament where we see this distinction being made one is Galatians 6 16 where Paul at the end of his letter says, and for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them. So in the context, it's clearly talking to the church and upon the Israel of God. Well, what does he mean by, by Israel of God? Well, it seems like he's talking about the Jews, like ethnic Jews, but who had, who had become believers, right? So he's in, in, in Galatians, he's making clear uh, that we're saved by faith alone, not by the works of the law. And he's he's really emphasizing that. And you don't have to become a Jew to uh, be saved. Well, after making all of that, uh, that uh, those, those um, arguments very strongly, just to make sure that he's not saying, therefore, you know, Jews are out of the picture. He's saying, no, but here there are these Jews mm-hmm. who are believers, but they're still part of Israel, right? ethnic Jews. But there's other instances where there's actually, we see God talking about ethnic Jews, Israel, and Gentiles, and the church all in one instance. So for example, 1 Corinthians uh, 10, verse 32. Second, we read this, give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Interesting to see that. And then, of course, uh, in, in Acts, especially, we see over and over again, the nation of Israel and ethnic Jews being addressed as Israel. Mm-hmm. And, and they're specifically being called as Jews, as Israel, to accept their Messiah. But they they are being um, addressed that way, even after the church began, right? So they're not, it's not like, well, okay, Israel. And by the way, I mean here, ethnic Jews. I'm not talking about the quote unquote new Israel, which is the church, which is some, what some people would claim. No, he doesn't say that. He just talks to them as Israel, as Jews. And so again, further evidence that there is this distinction. All right. Again, we could go on and on about that. We, we won't, but we'll move on to another important distinction. What is the relation of the church to the kingdom of God? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a, a really interesting one because uh, I think lots of times uh, we, uh, uh, as modern day Christians, use the the term kingdom of God in ways that it's not actually ever used in the Bible. And uh, for instance, you know, we might say like, we're seeking to build the kingdom of God. 
uh, well, and lots of times what we mean by that is probably we mean like we're going to go out and build the church by making new, new disciples, things like that. But actually, that's not really how the Bible uses the language of kingdom of God. The kingdom of God and the church are not the same. Uh, and and uh, we, we need to understand what the kingdom of God is in order to understand that they're not actually the same. And so the kingdom of God is kind of there's two different ways to look at it. There's the general kingdom of God where we know that God is ruling over everything. And so, you know, that's that's the kingdom of God. Uh, he is the king. Um, but then there's also another sense of the kingdom of God, which uh, we can read about even it, it's prophesied when when God speaks with David uh, about this messianic kingdom to come, that the line of David would never end. Uh, and I believe that's in, what is it, Second Samuel 7.16, I think, something like that. And, uh, and he says, like, there will be one of your children, essentially, on the throne forever, a king forever in the line of David. And we know that to be Jesus. Um, but yet, this hasn't actually happened yet. You know, uh, Jesus has not actually sat on the throne of David to reign physically, which is what God had promised David. We know that that's going to come. And so oftentimes in the Bible, when we're talking about the kingdom of God, it's talking about that kingdom that is yet to actually be established. We know it's going to happen, but it hasn't happened yet. Now, as the church today, of course, we're under the general rule uh, of God. So we're part of the kingdom of God, I suppose, in that sense. Um, but we're also actually a part of the kingdom of God in the future sense, the, the sense that Jesus will reign on the earth because uh, the Bible tells us we are citizens. Uh, though that hasn't happened yet, we know that we are citizens of that kingdom of God that is to come. And so uh, the, the basic idea here is the church and the kingdom of God are not are not synonyms. Uh, there, there certainly is similarities, but there's there's very big and important differences here as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, another way that sometimes the two categories of the kingdom have been uh, addressed or defined is as the universal kingdom, right? That that universal reign of Christ. And one passage where you see that is in, in Daniel chapter 4, 34 to 35. Then the days I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. His kingdom as in his rule and reign over the realm of this world, uh, ruling over it sovereignly and by his providence. That, that's something that uh, is always happening and that is his universal kingdom. But then there's often referred to then as his mediatorial kingdom, where he rules the earth directly through a representative. And of course, that's what Adam and Eve were supposed to do, but failed in that. And so the second Adam, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, right? And the Davidic, uh, uh, the Davidic covenant, and like you said, in 2 Samuel 7, kind of puts that forward. And so many other prophecies in the Old Testament as well. Like I think of Isaiah 2 and 9 and and other passages uh, talk about this future reign of a Davidic king on earth from Jerusalem, ruling and reigning. And of course, we find out later in Revelation what that looks like in Jesus Christ and his millennial kingdom. And so that's the, the mediatorial kingdom that is that is to come. And that's how the word kingdom is predominantly used then in the New Testament as fulfillment, Christ, Christ being the, the fulfillment of that, right? As he dies and rises again in order to make it possible for people, for sinners to become part of that future kingdom. And then when he comes again, he establishes it on earth. And again, Daniel talks about that in a number of instances. It prophesies this coming mediatorial messianic kingdom. Deuteronomy, or sorry, D Daniel 2, 
44, for example, where we see this. Uh, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. And then even more so, Daniel 7, 13 to 14, that talks about the coming son of man, which of course was how Jesus referred to himself so often. And I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom, which shall not pass away. It's future and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now we get to the New Testament and what do we find right away that uh, John the Baptist is like saying, hey, the kingdom's coming, prepare the way, right? And then Jesus says the kingdom is near and he's going to offer it, right, to Israel. And, and people think, well, now he's talking about something different. Now this is a completely different kingdom. He's talking about the church. He's talking about a spiritual kingdom in our hearts, blah, blah, blah. The problem is nowhere do we see that, and especially right at the beginning of, of the Gospels when we would expect that radical transformation of what people were expecting. No, what we see rather is uh, a reaffirmation of the same uh, messianic mediatorial kingdom of the son of David, Jesus Christ, literally reigning and ruling on earth over a kingdom. And one example would be uh, Luke 1, 32 to 33, where it says, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And so clearly that's the kingdom. And clearly that is not what's happening today, right? The kingdom is still to come. However, as believers, as you said, we're citizens of that kingdom. It says we're heirs of the kingdom of God. We're going to rule and reign over that kingdom with Jesus one day. Uh, but it's not something that is now. That's why we're supposed to pray your kingdom come in Matthew 6, right? Uh, that's why when we're preaching the kingdom, like that the apostles did in Acts, we're preaching a kingdom that is coming and inviting people to become part of that, to be citizens of that kingdom. Like we read in Colossians 1, 3, transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son, which is still to come. So we hope that's that's helpful just to understand those differences. And again, that's a whole nother episode. And actually, I'm sure that I did an interview with Pastor Josiah Boyd on this issue, if you want to dive deeper into that from last season. But let's move on. Why is it so important that we understand then the church rightly and these distinctions and what the church is and everything, generally speaking? I mean, I, I think it's only logical if you're a part of something, you should probably understand what it is that right. you're a part of. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, again, you're part of that universal church and hopefully you're part of a, a local church too. So uh, it's best that we understand what these things are actually mean that we understand like you mentioned before that the church isn't just a building that it's not just uh, our sunday morning service but that it means that as as a church we're part of the body of christ and there's lots that we can learn about that you know first corinthians chapter 12 tells us that as the body of christ we're all different parts of the body and we need to work together and we we've mentioned this i think that was only last episode maybe two episodes ago where we talked a little bit more about that but you know because that's part of the church. The body of Christ is the church and we're part of that. We need to understand what's our role. You know, how mm -hmm. can I actually serve others? What's, what's my part to play in being the body of Christ to make this thing uh, work properly. Um, and, and also I think just understanding the very word church again does mean assembly and, and the, the implication there is togetherness. 
And I think it does show us, uh, yes, you can be part of the universal church and not have that, you know, not have that actual community. But I don't think that's advised. I think the Bible makes it pretty clear that there should be this togetherness, if, if at all possible, there should be this assembly. And so I think it's important that we understand that, you know, that that very word assembly is where we get the word church, uh, ecclesia. And uh, it's important for us to meet together to have a uh, proper and true fellowship, which we see several times uh, that that we sing together, uh, that we uh, urge one another on in love and good works. That's our role as members of the body of Christ. That's our role as parts of the church. And, and we could go on and on. There, there's a lot more to what it means to be the church. And we'll talk mm-hmm. more about this in upcoming episodes. But uh, I just think it's, a, it's very important for us to recognize what the church is and what our role is in it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess we would just say, if you're listening today and you're part of our church or another local church and, you know, over the past two years where we haven't been meeting together um, in in full numbers or, you know, there's been health issues. And and obviously there's been some pretty heated debate about that within the Christian world about whether the assembly means we have to be together at all costs, no matter what, under any circumstance. Um, However, that's been... um, played out. The reality is for sure when the church can gather, as we see in Hebrews 10, 24 or 25, the assumption is the church can gather. There's nothing stopping them from gathering um, that you need to be with the people Mm -hmm. of God. It's very important. And so we just want to urge you to to join again with the church of God, if if at all possible, whichever local church you're part of. I would just add one more thing to everything Mm -hmm. you said, and that's that uh, it's also important to recognize especially from what we see in Ephesians 4, that to grow in spiritual maturity, you have to be part of a local church. In fact, the local church itself cannot be what it needs to be and grow without every member of that local church um, committed and playing their part in it. I, I read earlier in Ephesians 4 about... He gave Jesus giving apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So there's this role that we play as shepherd teachers. We equip the saints, everyone in particularly in our local church, but at others, too, if they're obviously visiting or whatever. Um, And the reason is so that they then can do the work of ministry, every member. And then that builds up the body. Right. And so. Uh, Then it goes on until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood to the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And then it goes on to give more emphasis on how each part of the body needs to Mm -hmm. play its part to grow. And that's so important because we have overemphasized I'm going to be careful here, but we've overemphasized our personal relationship with Jesus and personal devotions. And I think that's probably because there was a time where that was de-emphasized and it was too much focused on just what happens at church or what happens when we're together or corporate worship. But you cannot have one of those without the other. You know, you can be reading your Bible all the time, praying like crazy, um, you know, evangelizing, be, you know, obeying God's commands, um, all of that. You can be taking in, you know, all kinds of classes and watching all kinds of sermons online, all that kind of stuff. If you're not part of a local church, 
though, and using your gifts to build up the body, this tells us you cannot fully mature. You will be stunted. You will not reach mature manhood. You will not reach the measure of stature of Christ. You need the church, the local church. You need gifted pastor shepherds who are going to equip you. And you need other believers who are going to use their gifts to build you up as you build them up. That's mm -hmm. so important. The, the church, you know, Ephesians, uh, Ephesians 5 later says, says um, Christ uh, died for the church, right? Uh, to sanctify his bride the church it's all church language right uh and and we we live in an in extremely individualistic society and sadly that has very easily seeped into the church and i think mm -hmm. to the detriment of the church and the detriment of our own personal maturity yeah so you know clearly the the church is important then and that's what that's what we're saying here and so i guess maybe to to close the the last question would be how has the church impacted your christian life mm-hmm yeah. Well, I mean, we probably would say a lot of the same things, but church has been family. Like from the beginning, growing up in a, in a small church, uh, it was family. You know, those people, so many of these other adults became sort of like second parents to me. And uh, we spent so much time together. It was a big priority, the church. And I mean, I always thought about it like Sunday morning was kind of like a weekly family gathering with my spiritual family. And then we would go on retreats, which were probably the highlight of the year for me, hands down. Uh, retreats, we would go into camps and it was almost like we're going on family holidays, right? Mm -hmm. Like the family of God. Um, and that that has just left a huge impact because those people poured into my life at a young age and laid the foundation for me along with my my parents uh, in Christ. And so, man, I just, I, I thinking back, I cannot imagine my childhood without the church. But thinking now, I can't imagine my life even more now without the church. It's it's so important. Yeah, I mean, you get that amazing fellowship, uh, which I mean, that's what a family is, right? That's and the family of God uh, meeting together. That's that's true fellowship. Uh, you know, praying with one another, reading together, uh, worshiping together, whether that's through singing or through listening to the preaching of the word. All of that, doing that together, is such an amazing and powerful thing. I think of. Uh, you know, friendships that have formed uh, for mm -hmm. myself uh, through local gatherings, uh, people who have walked alongside me as I grow in my Christian walk, who, who are an example to me of Christ and all of these things. And we could go on and on and on about this, but all of these things are why the church is so important to me. Yeah, actually, come to think of it, I think we did a whole episode a while ago or last year all about this very thing. Yeah, I can't remember exactly when it was, but we talked a lot about how the church impacted our lives growing up and how it continues to today. So if you're interested in hearing more about how the, the church has impacted our lives, you can feel free to check that one out. Yeah, for sure. So. That's probably where we'll end then. So uh, next time, join us. We'll be discussing chapters 71 to 73, which will consider how the church is to be biblically governed and led. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you now and forever. So long. See ya.